Well, that is uh, certainly our, uh, our prayer as we continue in, uh, in our study of Isaiah. And uh, it's been interesting as Jeff and I continue to talk about this book and where God is taking us. We're a little bit overwhelmed by the work that certainly he is doing in us, but we hope he's doing in our church. And uh, man, this is a sweet, sweet time. Uh, I hope will be as encouraging to you as it has been uh, to me and then to Jeff as well. If you're new, we're, we're working through the book of Isaiah, and uh, this is just our third week, so uh, great timing for you to join us as we get uh, into this book. I want to start uh, with a question, and that is, um, when was the last time that you uh, were confronted? Someone came to you to confront you about you. And now, con- confrontation can be a, a real positive thing. It can be somebody affirming you or applauding you, uh, encouraging you in a great way. So that can be a confrontation. But I'm talking about, you know, when somebody comes along and they, they say, uh, hey, can we talk? That Kind of that awkward <laughs> moment. And you're like, uh, sure, what do we need to talk about? And then they begin to share with you Something that might need to change. And I wonder how you responded to that. I don't always, I wish I responded much better than I, than I do. Uh, perhaps you can relate to that. I thought of two natural ways that we respond to confrontation. One is to minimize the issue It's to justify or excuse or blame shift. You know, it's basically if I can kind of shrink this down to so it's microscopic, we won't have to talk about it, and I certainly won't have to deal with it. So that's one natural response. It's sort of the defensive response. Then there's this other response that has to do with the messenger. And so what I do is I doubt the intent of the one who's confronting me. Maybe you've never done that before. But, but both of those responses don't actually do anything about the issue that needs to be addressed. And uh, as we get into, uh, back into Isaiah here, we're going to see God actually doing a little confronting. And the reality is, it's hard to face the raw truth about ourselves, especially when we've lost our way. But we need, we need that kind of truth given to us as graciously as can be done so that we can change. Last week, Jeff uh, took us through the first part of chapter 1, which really dealt with right worship that was tainted by wrong behavior. So in other words, the people of God were kind of just going right along with their routine, their religious routine, but they weren't addressing things that were happening outside of that routine, in here, and in their just day-to-day living. And that was a problem. This week, it's a holy intervention. (laughs) It's like God pulling his people aside and saying, listen, I got to tell you the truth about you. And then while doing that, I'm going to tell you the truth 
about me. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah, and uh, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 21. Now this is continuing an introduction that's actually five chapters long. Uh, Jeff began it last week, so we'll be in it for a little while, but this picks up the lament that began in verse 2. Remember, Jeff told us that in a lament of God through his prophet Isaiah began in verse 2. It picks up again in 21 in a very emphatic way. How the faithful city has become a whore. Wow, that's a confrontation, isn't it? She who is full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Verse 24. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with lie and remove all of your alloy and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward. You shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So how do you respond to a confrontation like that? It's a beautiful, beautiful word of intervention. God is portrayed as a spouse, as a prosecutor, as the judge, and then as the restorer. Amazing portrait of our God. And we mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that, that Isaiah is a literary masterpiece. And actually, this is a beautiful illustration of that, the way that it's laid out in its original format. I put this in your outline so that you could see it. But really, you have two segments here who mirror one another. And they're really designed to convey two messages. But let me show you how they relate to one another. Verse 21, which talks about a faithful people now given to spiritual prostitution, it mirrors down in 26 a restoration of faithful people. Then in verse 21, righteous people who have given themselves to murder. 26a, justice is restored. 22, purity has given way to impurity. Virtue, diluted by vice. And 25, divine purging of impurity. And then right in the middle, right in the heart of it, a great contrast exists between leadership tainted by corruption and callousness and the intervention of divine sovereignty, of God stepping in to do for his people what they can't do for themselves. So you could draw a line right through the middle of those two segments, and on the top side, you could put honest 
exposure. It's the confrontation. And then on the bottom half, you could write committed restoration. And these two need to go together. And oftentimes we miss one or the other. And we need to get both. That's why this segment is so important to our understanding about how to respond to confrontation. So we'll begin with honest exposure. God telling the people of Israel, specifically the people of Judah, the truth about them. Now I'm sure being characterized as harlots and murderers was a little bit unsettling for them. I don't know how they responded. We're not told that here, but I can see it because I know me. I, you know, kind of going, gosh, that, that sounds kind of mean, like kind of harsh. I mean, harlots and, and murderers? Are, are we really impure? Is our, is our religion deluded? I mean, are you exaggerating here or are you really telling us the truth? I mean, God, do you have an axe to grind against us? This is really, really strong. By the way, have you seen the Assyrians and the Egyptians? I mean, they're really bad. Does that ring a bell? See how easily it is to just sort of shift out of the way and miss the whole thing altogether? I I seem to remember back in Genesis, the man saying, it was the woman that you gave me. And then her saying, it was that serpent that was slithering around in the garden. It is our natural instinct to shift everything off of us. But God wants us to sit right under this and gain the benefit of truth spoken in love. I want you to notice that the infidelity of Judah to her spouse, God, is linked to infidelity horizontally within each other and it's not just anybody it's the people who have neglecting being unfaithful to the people who don't and it's a it's a gross offense to an all-powerful God think about this these are people blessed by an all-powerful God and the people with power withhold blessing from the people who need it and God is going, this, this isn't just unfortunate. This is tragic. Like, you guys need to wake up and see this for what it really is. And this isn't just anywhere on earth. This is in Jerusalem. This is the place on earth where God chose to dwell. His temple is there in all of its glory to tell everybody, this is where God lives. And these people, they are his chosen people. In 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Commentator John Oswalt says, For Jerusalem to become such a place as what's described here, indicated that the rot was not merely superficial and regrettable. It was central and catastrophic. I am convinced that I don't see my own sin 
nearly as well as I need to. Not nearly as well as God would like me to. Not for condemnation, but so that I might turn from it back toward him. That's why he's so strong. That's why he confronts these people. But he doesn't stop with a confrontation of their sin. He follows it with committed restoration in verses 24 to 26. And it's interesting, there is that stark contrast between Judah's leaders and God as a leader. And he's uh, named the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, which would have meant to them one of complete mastery, unrivaled dominion. He can do whatever he wants to do. And in this case, he wants to restore, and he's not just willing, he's able. So this is actually a great reassurance here to see him named as he is named. He uh, points out that his enemies and foes uh, are going to be addressed, and these aren't from surrounding nations. He's talking about inside the camp, inside this community of faith. And he says that he's going to get relief from them. He's going to avenge himself with them. And so I have to ask you, what do you think about that? Is that unsettling for you? Like, do you have a category for God to address his people that way? Does that seem like overreacting? Does that seem harsh to you? Does it seem like God has just kind of gone over the top here, talking about vengeance? And relief. I guess the question of intent is really the most important thing here, isn't it? Like, what is God's intent? Not only speaking to his people in the way that he has, but what he is going to do. The intent makes all the difference in the world. He says he's going to smelt away their dross, remove their alloy. In other words, he is going to refine them to do away with whatever it is in them that ought not be there. He's doing a beautiful work in them. It's going to be painful, but really, really good and really, really necessary. The vengeance of God isn't about getting even. It's about getting them back to the ideal where they began. Remember our segment started with a, a faithful city that had become unfaithful? And they're going to be made faithful again. And it's going to be through discipline. With that in mind, I want to ask you about a subject. I obviously don't know where you stand on this, but let's talk for just a minute about spanking. Okay? I'm sure you've got an opinion on it. And uh, some of you may be for it. Some of you may be against it. Some of you may think it's a real productive kind of thing. Some of you may think it's abusive. Certainly it can be. But here's the most important question. How did you arrive at your opinion about that? Is it purely experiential? Did you read a little bit? Did somebody tell you something? Maybe you're a parent and you're starting to confront like what that's like to have to wrestle with discipline. I, like, How did you form 
your opinion about spanking. Did you consider what the scriptures say about spanking? Did you know there's some stuff in there? By the way, just as a side note, Dennis and Barbara Rainey have a phenomenal resource on this subject. So I'm not going to, like this isn't a training on spanking today. But, but listen, how we think about this subject tells us a lot about how we think about the discipline of God. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Proverbs 20, 30. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes that make clean, strokes make clean the innermost parts. Proverbs twenty two fifteen folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and the parents said, "You didn't say that very convincingly." <laughs> it is, I promise you. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Now, listen. I just want to say it again. I don't want to be misunderstood. Corporal punishment can be abusive. So I'm not advocating that. I'm saying there is a good and right way that this can be done. But the most important thing is intent. How it's delivered. Proverbs 23 says, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. I'm testimony to that. <laughs> I'm alive. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Listen, I was left to myself far more than I should have been. And I can tell you there are so many regrettable things that might have been curbed by loving discipline. The pain of discipline, biblically understood, is not punitive. It's instructive and redemptive. And it is painful or it's not discipline. It's designed to impress upon us the destination of disobedience. It's, it's a momentary bit of pain to help us avoid a future monumental amount of pain. Did, did you hear that? A momentary bit of pain to help us avoid a monumental future pain. And, and we all want that, right? We want to avoid those things. And parents, we want that for our kids. So we intervene with discipline. In a sense, to bring restoration. You know, it's stunning, really, that God is dedicated to the restoration of Israel and us, but not through the vehicle of annihilation but through redemption isn't that amazing 
that God would be so patient and kind with us that rather than just wiping us out because we got it all wrong, that he would do the hard work of discipline, measured consequences that cultivate faithfulness in everyday life. Isn't that great? I love what one commentator said. In light of who God is and what he is like, he is able to graciously recreate lost purity. Man, that is good news. I need that. So after establishing intent, so we had the, the um, correction, we had the restoration, and uh, the intent of God. Now he gives us a vivid picture of what can be expected by those who dismiss this intervention. Those who neglect the discipline of the Lord. Look in verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. That's a summary of what, what goes for those who uh, embrace the discipline of God. But verse 28, rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake or reject the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall, be, shall become tender. Think of fire starter. And his work, the best that he has to offer, that's going to be like a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. That's the picture of one who rejects the confrontation of God, the discipline of God. Now, let's compare that with Psalm 1. The picture there. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's that guy's life like? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's a life disciplined by God. Got two groups of people here, repenters and rebels. And they're both sinners. One of them rejects, forsakes, neglects, denies the confrontation of God, the truth about them. And the other embraces it, welcomes it, engages it humbly, teachably. And this isn't a behavioral choice. This is a relational choice. This isn't performance. We're not talking about cleaning your life up and just doing better for God. This is a choice of will you welcome the work of God in your life or not? 
those that don't, they're going to be ashamed, but not by God. They're not shamed by God. What they're shamed by is the betrayal of the idols that they've worshipped. They've put all their energy and time and everything into these lifeless things and they have nothing to show for it. They stand there with empty hands and it brings them shame. But then there are those who will receive the discipline of God and it brings them life. It causes them to bear fruit. It brings them great joy. I've said this before, but God is the only hope of humanity who is unwilling to be anything less than our only hope. He will not share his place with anything or anyone. And that's a good thing. It's been said, sin will take you further than you ever wanted to stray, cost you more than you ever dreamed you would pay, and keep you longer than you ever thought you'd stay. Take this to heart. It is a profound act and gift of mercy that God would show us our destiny apart from him. It's a, it's a gift of grace today that you, are, you and I are confronted by a destiny of rebellion. Now, he follows this stark reality of rebellion with a beautiful view from the other side. For those who do walk through this wonderful path, wonderful, painful path of discipline, there's a, a beautiful uh, future that awaits. Uh, begins in chapter 2. Um, and it begins much like the beginning of chapter 1. You'll see the, the similarity here. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So the word vision is replaced by the word word. Same thing. A picture, a portrait of a future thing related to Judah and Jerusalem. Then in verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter day. So there's this really amazing thing that happens in the book of Isaiah. Uh, remember in the first chapter, he talked about in the day of Uzziah's, uh, he talked about the king Uzziah. So his vision began with him, a, a dead king, we'll find out in uh, chapter 6, and runs all the way through the latter days. The day when the king of kings will come and make all things right, make all things new, completely restore his creation. So with that in mind, let's pick this back up again. It shall come in the to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's a, a great encouragement in the day in which we live with all of the conflict going on. This is a motivation for those who will endure the discipline of God that we're going to read about throughout the book of Isaiah. They're going to live through that and they're going to live beyond that. And this is the picture, this is the vision of a day when everything will be as God intends. And that is supposed to give them the strength to endure. The strength to stay at it, even when life gets hard, even when they get off track, even when they grow weary, this is where they're supposed to go. To stay at it. Notice there's a second invitation. Jeff mentioned one last week, we got this week, and then another one coming. Uh, this invitation to come. What a beautiful invitation. Verse uh, 3, come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us and that we may walk in his paths. That's the purpose of the teaching that God would provide. One commentator said, learning is for the purpose of living. We don't learn just to be smarter. We learn so that we can live differently for the rest of our days. This uh, mountain of the house of the Lord is also referred to as Zion. And so we need to, to think about this as like this is the epicenter of God's presence. This is the place where life is found. And notice, it's got a magnetism about it. Like it's drawing people from all over earth to its place so that they might find life. Not death. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about prophecy, and, and prophecy is foretelling and foretelling. So, foretelling is telling the truth, foretelling is telling the truth about the future. And so, what's happening here is Isaiah is telling the truth about a future, and that future is all about a remnant. And it begs the question will you be the remnant? And you're not just rolling dice here. You get to choose. Do you want to be in the remnant or not? And here's the way you do it. You submit to the loving discipline of God in your life. That's how you are preserved. Day in and day out as life comes at you. Disarmament. This, this picture of peace, it's really just a picture of God reordering the world so that it fits properly under his sovereign leadership. And everything works as he intends. And he, he covers us. He provides for us. He protects us. He does all that we need him to do as our perfect, holy leader. So to summarize, 
we're seeing the gracious influence here of God's holy intervention. Not only in the lives of those in Judah, but, but today. God is willing and able to intervene in your life and in mine. And we're seeing a faith-stretching path from our sinfulness to a place of repentance through the pain of conviction. Did you hear that? A place of sinfulness to a place of repentance through the pathway of conviction. That is the path of restoration. That's the path we're going to be on together as we go through this book of Isaiah. So how do you respond to that? What's your reflex? What's your instinct? I want to finish with some words of encouragement from the book of Hebrews. He writes um, about God's intent for, uh, for discipline and then how we might want to respond. So let me use this as uh, hopefully an encouragement Uh, an encouragement to respond well to the conviction of God. Verse 5 in chapter 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And you can put, and daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That's the natural way to respond to discipline. Now why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. That's his intent. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. You've got to remember that when the discipline of the Lord comes. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you aren't disciplined by the Lord, you're a spiritual orphan. If you are disciplined by the Lord, that is a great assurance of his love for you. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. They did it imperfectly, but we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us. Why? For our good. That we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. For who? Not for everybody. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I want to give you an opportunity this morning to invite, it's a scary thought, I know, but to invite the training 
discipline of God in your life. To say to him, I know there are things about me that I don't know about me. There are things that I need to understand about my heart, the inner workings in a place that I can't see, but you can. Invite the Lord into that place. Invite him to convict you, to correct you, to instruct you. And you know what? It's a painful thing, but it's only momentary. And it will help you avoid monumental pain later in life. To just allow him to meet you in that way, in that place. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to do that. Just This is between you and the Lord. Invite him, ask him to do this precious work in your heart. All right? As you continue in a posture of seeking the Lord, self-examination, I want you to listen carefully and let these words from Psalms 119 wash over your heart and mind. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. 
then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. And when I lean, when I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man and woman keep their way pure? By gardening according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. And I will not forget your word. Please, Lord, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Please open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Oh, I am a sojourner on this earth. Hide not your commandments from me. Your rebuke, you rebuke the insolent who wander from your commandments. Lastly, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the very end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life 